Well, I mentioned that last week we finished with verse 11. I had intended to go to verse 12 last week, but we ran out of time. And so this morning, we're going to begin looking at verse 12. You remember that this section that Peter has quoted here from verse 10 through 12 is taken from Psalm 34. It's taken from Psalm 34, and he concludes his citation of Psalm 34 with these words. Now listen closely, church. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and His ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord, the full face, is against those who do evil. The first thing I want you to notice about verse 12 is the personal language that is used in God's dealings with the righteous. The righteous, in this case, and I'll get into this more in just a minute, those who are doing good get God's eyes and His ears. Now, we don't have to fall into any kind of heresy imagining that God the Father has eyes and ears. He's not a man like us. He doesn't have a body like a man. But the psalmist and Peter referring from the psalm is using the personal language that we can relate to to show you how intimately involved in the lives of those doing good God the Father is. We have, if we're doing good, if we're being obedient to Him, His visual and auditory attention. This conveys that God is personally invested in the lives of His obedient children. And in contrast, the second part of verse 12, God's response to the doing of evil is a relational distance. It is a relational distance. His whole face is set against those who do what is evil. Now, is he talking about Christians in the second part of verse 12? Is he talking about us, the church of Jesus Christ here, at Christ the King? Or is he talking about those who are outside of the new covenant? Now, I could go into a long debate here, and the last part of verse 12 is a debate that goes back and forth. Who is he talking about here? Is God setting his face against the reprobate? Is he setting his face against his people, but those who choose evil, and he shows his fatherly displeasure of their behavior? Which is it? I'll give you the two true perspectives, and I do think that you can take either perspective and still wind up in the right. We know that God is angry with the wicked every single day. Psalm 7 verse 11 records. But, and I think this is where Peter is heading, this entire section has to do with the behavior of God's people. It has to do with our conduct, not with the conduct of the reprobate or the lost, those outside of the church. Remember last week we talked about some theological eurythmics. Tammy said you might also think of uh, the pattern of you know, having to pat your head and rub your belly at the same time. I won't attempt to do that for you because I can't. Um, th this is something theologically that we might have to do. Walk and chew gum at the same time. Pat our head and rub our belly. You are a child of God. In Christ Jesus you are absolutely and forever a child of God, a true child of God, just as much a child of God as Jesus is. And yet, can God the Father be disappointed with your behavior? 
Absolutely he can. Absolutely he can. I'll give you an example from life. Let's say that the Chris Jones family is at a public event. And I notice that one of my boys is in conversation with another young child. After some observation, I learn that my son is trying to include this new acquaintance, whom I find out is a bit of a loner, in some group game that the other children are engaged in. This irritable and ungrateful boy is not having it and is even saying hateful things to my son. Now, as a parent, what should I do? I don't want to be too quick to rush into this situation. My boys need to learn how to love an unlovable person. But I will tell you this. My eyes are on my child. I am listening to the conversation in case I'm needed. And if this thing turns south and the other boy swings a fist at my son, it would be time for a parent to intervene. Now, let's say that our family is at the same event. And my son desires to include this same boy in a group game. But talking to a mean-spirited mongrel isn't the way to reach his heart. What you need to do is run up and tackle the kid and then give him a swift punch in the gut. That's how you reach the heart of a young boy. And I'm not saying that any of my boys would actually do that. But as a dad... I know what's likely going to happen to my son. A man reaps what he sows. Now I ask you something, church. In both situations, what is true? The father is looking on the situation. In both situations, my son being obedient, my son being disobedient. I'm looking on in both situations. When my son hits the sour-faced kid for no reason, did he stop being my son? No, he did not. Do I know what's likely to come back my son's way? Yes, I do. Does my face in that moment show approval or disapproval? This is essentially what I think is going on in verse 12. We don't stop being God's children when we do wrong, but his fatherly countenance and demeanor reflects the behavior that we're displaying. Let me give you a few more clarifications to help solidify exactly what I'm saying here that I see in verse 12. First of all, the righteous described in verse 12 at the beginning part of verse 12, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, are called righteous because, as I've mentioned, they're being obedient. Peter is not talking about here people who are righteous because of their declared righteousness as ascribed to them by God because of the work of Jesus Christ on their behalf because they put their faith in Him. That is true. Jesus dies for His people. We put our faith in Christ and then we are given a declared and forever righteous standing before God. And that is unchangeable. However, we have actions on this earth. And our actions... Demand a response from a loving, heavenly Father. The bulk of this letter has been spent on our conduct. What sense would it make all of the sudden to shift the conversation to those who are outside of the church or those who are merely righteous just because of their faith in Christ apart from anything that they've done? That's not what Peter's talking about here. He's talking about the righteous who are righteous because of what they are doing, because they're walking in step with the Spirit. They're 
being obedient to Christ Jesus. They're living for Christ. The church has been commanded to do good and promise life and seeing and loving their days on earth. But what if I were to turn around and say, since we are declared righteous before God, He will always look on us with favor and hear our prayers. Beloved, you know that's not true. We've just heard a few verses back about a husband who if he does not treat his wife with love and respect, will lose that connection for God to hear his prayers. There will be a hindrance there. Something in that relationship will be disturbed to where God in his loving judicial discipline on that son of his will say, Son, you have to reconcile with her before we continue this conversation. I need you to go make that right. His prayers will be hindered. This is what Peter is pointing to and David's point in writing the psalm. God blesses those who follow and obey Him and their lives may include difficulty and trial, but His eye is ever on the righteous and He promised to hear their prayers because they are keeping in that covenant faithfulness with Him. Hear what Calvin says about this passage. Calvin says, It ought to be a consolation to us, sufficient to mitigate all evils, that we are looked upon by the Lord so that He will bring us help in due time. The meaning then is this, that the prosperity which He, that being Peter, has mentioned depends upon the protection of God. For were not the Lord to care for His people, they would be like sheep exposed to wolves. What is this consolation sufficient to mitigate all evils? It's the reward and it motivates. It's that love of the Father and the wanting to honor the Father. I want to honor the Father. I want to be obedient to Him. I want to bring His name glory. And when I do, blessings follow. That's what Peter's talking about here. In contrast, the warning is a motivator too. The warning is a motivator too. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. What does Peter mean by this? Remember, we're talking about our actions not our justified state. Since we're talking about actions at the beginning of verse 12, it only makes sense that we're talking about our actions at the end of verse 12. Chris, I don't understand. Would God then treat me like a lost person? Would He treat me like a reprobate? No. You sang it this morning. When we are faithless, He is faithful. He never gives up. He never loses heart. He's not a parent who gets frustrated with his children and then loses his temper and goes off. That's not our Heavenly Father. I take, he sets his face against those who do evil to mean the face of discipline. My son, from Hebrews 12, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. He flogs every son whom he receives. When I take my child in to discipline them because they've done something wrong to another child or they've sinned in our home, I don't want them to see on my face a loss of joy. 
I don't want them to see, oh no, dad's world has just come apart because you messed up my day. I don't want them to see that. At the same time, I don't want to walk into this private place where I will take my child to discipline them and them to see that everything's okay. You've sinned. It's such a happy day. I, that's going to be confusing. My child should see reflected on my countenance that there is a steady undercurrent of joy while at the same time, dad is disappointed in what you've done. My face isn't proud of this. I'm not happy that you hit your sister. I'm not happy that you insisted on your own way, that you took the toy, that you said you've got to have this portion of the food at the dinner table. I'm not happy about that. And our children should see that reflected in our face. You might say, Chris, it's, it still seems like very strong language. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. What's the purpose of God using such strong language? As I mentioned, it's a motivator. It's a motivator for the children of God to want to do what pleases their father. Listen to another harsh word spoken to the Hebrews from the letter of Hebrews chapter 6. The writer of the Hebrews says, For in the case of those once having been enlightened and having tasted of the heavenly gift and having become partakers of the Holy Spirit and having tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and having fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. Now that sounds really strong. It sounds as though the writer of the Hebrews is talking about a Christian here. Somebody who's tasted the heavenly gift, become a partaker of the Holy Spirit, tasted the good of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then wait, they would fall away? Beloved, you know that the Bible teaches that when God begins a project, He always finishes it. Every time. Romans 8, those whom he predestines, he calls. By the way, he predestines and then he calls every single one of those he predestines. And then those whom he calls, every single one, without forgetting one, he justifies each one of them. He declares them righteous because of their faith in Christ at the moment of the regeneration that he brings into their life. And then every one of those who is justified, Paul, it's amazing here in Romans 8, he already sees glorification as having happened. It's so sure to happen. He knows everybody who's predestined gets all the way to glorification. God always finishes the work that He starts. John says in 1 John, those who go out from us were never of us in the first place. That's the reality. So then what is Hebrews communicating to us? What is Peter trying to say here by quoting from Psalm 34, this second part of verse 12. I think these passages do not describe an actual reality that will happen, namely that you could lose your salvation or that God has some sort of enmity still with His children. All of that was swallowed up in Jesus. Think about that for a minute, beloved. All of the enmity that you had with God was swallowed up in Christ. All of it. It's exhausted. It's gone. There's no more vendetta between you and God. 
But the warning is used here in Hebrews and at the end of verse 12 to motivate the children of God to obedience. When I read this in Hebrews 6 or I read this at the end of verse 12, I think as a son of God, no, I I don't want that to happen. I, I don't want to dishonor my father. I want him to be pleased by me. I want him to be pleased in what I do. I want him to look down and say, well done. Well done. At the last day, what do we all want to hear? Well done, good and faithful servant. Now, this isn't in the text, but I want to dig into your heart for just a minute because I think that reading a scripture in this way and relating to your father as a loving father is so difficult in our day and age. And for some of us, It's the hardest thing about trying to relate devotionally to God. If there's one reason that I could give above all others that Christians fail to grasp these passages, see the rewards, see the motivators, even the strong language and say, I want to honor God. It's because that Christians today are not really convinced that God truly loves them. I want to ask you, did you walk into church this morning truly convinced that beyond any shadow of a doubt, God loves you absolutely? Absolutely. We live today, beloved, in a fatherless age. It is very rare to hear someone praise their father let alone put their father forward as a positive example. This takes a huge toll on our relationship with and the understanding we have of our Heavenly Father. It absolutely does. I've mentioned to you all before that as a younger man, my relationship to my earthly father was strained and distant. I often felt unloved At best, I felt tolerated. That has an effect on how you relate to your Heavenly Father. It does. There's just no two ways about it. I'd say many of you have felt similarly growing up. We are a mass of people, if you can imagine, like a lot full of cars that have no gauge on the dash for how much my Father loves me. You don't even have a gauge for it. It's hard to even imagine the love of a heavenly father because you seldom, if ever, felt the love of your earthly one. Now, could this situation be any worse? Could we make this situation any worse? And I would say, yes, we, in our doubt and our fear, do make it worse. And how we make it worse is actually putting Jesus in the situation. Now, that's going to sound really strange. What do you mean? We'll put Jesus in the situation and that makes it worse? Let me give you a further example from my life. Let's say that if when I was still in school, someone that my dad really respected came to our home to talk to him. Let's say, for example, somebody my dad looked up to like Peyton Manning. Okay, My dad loved Peyton Manning. We're from Knoxville. Come on, if you don't know what I'm talking about. 
If Peyton Manning had walked into my home when I was a young man, my dad would have been on his best behavior. Let's say that while he's there, Peyton sees some interactions between father and son that concern him. If he had told my dad, hey, knock it off, Buck, or be a better dad to your boys, would anything have changed? Maybe. Maybe for a day or so. Well, Chris, doesn't that make it a little better? You might think so, but now I only think that my dad loves me because Peyton told him to. I'm still not convinced that my dad truly loves me. Here's my point. For whatever reason, your sins, your relationship to an earthly father, etc., on and on, you think that God the Father's love is a reluctant love, that He merely tolerates you. He has to. After all, He respects Jesus, and Jesus told Him to. Father, don't be mean to Chris. He repented, and he's my friend now. Now, I say that tongue-in-cheek, but that is a feeling, I think, of many Christians today. I still don't know how to relate to my father. Yes, Jesus died for me. Yes, Jesus justified me. Yes, I'm pure in God's eyes. But I'm still struggling to sense that God really loves me. Jesus has to stand in his way and protect me from that mean heavenly father. I mean, that's the feeling that so many Christians have. I hope this will be a freeing thought for you today, beloved. Your adoption into the family of God did far more for you than to make God tolerable towards you. John says, again in 1 John, see how great a love the Father has for us that we would be called the children of God. And beloved, we are. We are. The Bible isn't soft on our sin. It's not soft on our brokenness. It exposes our real neediness before the throne of heaven. You were in bad shape whenever and wherever God found you. But beloved, you have got to believe this truth and grasp it by faith. He didn't leave you that way. He did not leave you that way. You know the people of Israel described in Ezekiel as basically an aborted child. A child at birth that was thrown out. Blood still all over it. And God walks by and says, live. Come alive. Live. Such a picture of our regeneration. I'll give you a New Testament example. And I want you to hear this as how the Father really cares about you because this is the point of Jesus' telling of this story. And how much God cares for you is more than you can fathom. The son said to his father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Most Christians live their life in that reality. That's where I am. I'll never be worthy to be called his son. The father always responds by getting his slaves telling them quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf, slaughter it, let us eat and celebrate for this son of mine was dead 
and has come to life again. My son was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. I love that. They began to celebrate. Son of mine. Jesus says of the woman who came for his help, she too is a daughter of Israel. We sing these words often from Sovereign Grace Music. You sought out the wanderers. You made the prodigals come home. With a lavish feast, you welcomed us, for you made us your own. Now hear this, beloved. You, the Father, have loved us like in the same way that you loved your Son. We are heirs with Christ. We are bought by His blood. Oh, how great the love that we've been shown. Because why? We're your children now. You've made us your own. If I could ask you this morning to consider, to see, and even to repent, to get it all the way out of your system, God, if you are in Christ today, truly loves you. He doesn't love you because he has to look at Christ and not at you. He doesn't love you because he's looking at the rest of the body of Christ and not at you. He loves you. He does. This isn't some mushy-gushy feeling thing. If you were a child of God, he has showed you the same love that he shows his son. Believe it, church. Believe it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, those doing good, and His ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. My Father loves me. I want to do what's good. And I want to receive blessing from Him. I want the reward. I'm not ashamed of that reward. I want to work heartily for my reward. As to the Lord and not for men. Well, then Peter goes on in verse 13 to ask a rhetorical question. That's a question with an implied answer. He says to his first century readers, Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? Now, you'll likely remember that Peter has already talked about being persecuted for doing good. He's already mentioned Christian slaves and wives suffering for their righteous behavior. He's also writing to a church that since its inception has dealt with one persecution after another. These are the people who had wolves in their churches trying to factionalize and fracture the church. These are the people who are having to answer to or run from Emperor Nero. These are the people having their property damaged or seized while they go and visit their brothers or sisters in Christ who have been carted off to prison. Doing good, getting harm. The church in Peter's day was, you might say, at the bottom of the food chain. Can you imagine what a bunch of beat up, broken-hearted, governmentally outlawed, homeless saints would think of hearing Peter say, Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? Who are you kidding, Peter? Since I've known Jesus, I've made some enemies. I can give you some names if you'd like. If no one is 
supposed to harm me when I do good. Why am I being persecuted? Beloved, this is a good instance for us to learn to guard our hearts against letting our experiences color the way we read the Word of God. Be careful. Ever since I've been with Christ, i faced this and this and this and this. So Peter can't mean what he actually says here. No, actually he does. He does. Several weeks ago, at one of the men's beer and psalms, Daniel Wright talked to us about self-defense. And he talked to us about different means of self-defense, thinking about self-defense. One of the things he talked to us about was a system called the Cooper Color Code Threat Assessment. Now, in this color-coded threat assessment system, you're talking about the kind of awareness you have of what's going on around you. So he talked about people being in either a category of the white or yellow or red or black. I think there's orange in there too. Okay, so there's like five different colors. White, yellow, orange, red, black. And they're kind of on a, on a scale of if I'm in what's called the white code, it means I'm completely oblivious to what's going on around me. You see kids like this all the time at the mall. They've got their you know, headset in, they're listening to something. You know, if, if a person who wanted to mug them, you know, just saw somebody like that, he could walk up, punch him in the gut, steal a wallet, and they wouldn't even know what happened. They're completely oblivious to what's going on around them. Now, being a little bit further aware of your surroundings, yellow, and then even more aware, orange, and then even the most aware in the red, you want to be somewhere in that range. You always want to be kind of, okay, I've got my head on a swivel. I know what's going on around me. That's what this Cooper color code is to help us see. Now, there are those, like people especially in the military, or if you've ever been in a street fight, you can get so zoned in on the struggle that you're in that it's like you've got tunnel vision. And they call that being in code black. You have no awareness of what's going on around you because all you can see is this threat right here. And that's actually a really dangerous place to be. You want to make sure that even though you might be engaging a threat, you're still assessing a situation that's going on around you. Well, what does this have to do with what Peter's saying here? I think that our experiences color, if I may, the way that we assess what's going on in the world around us and the way that we read the Word of God. We sense that we have struggled with so much in this life. Christians have become fearful. I don't think that God loves me. I've lost my joy and now I'm constantly engaged in this one thing. If this one thing would be better in my life, if God would make this one thing go away, I could finally relax and be at peace. And then you devotionally try and read Peter's words and you say, are you kidding me? I do good and I deal with persecution and harm all the time. Do you see? Do you see how sometimes we assess what's going on around us and then it colors the way that we read the Word of God? Peter reminds his readers, many of whom were likely suffering in his church, that people don't generally suffer for doing good. Verse 13 is a truism. We talked last week about the promises of God. The promises of God are so sure God will never back down from them. Even if we're faithless, He remains faithful to His promises. And yet Peter wants to bring in at this point 
a general truth. If you do good, good is likely to come your way. Who is there to harm you for doing good? If you do good, if you're zealous for good works, generally speaking, who is there to harm you? Let me ask the question this way. When's the last time that you saw someone get a cat out of a tree and then they were carted off by a lynch mob? That's what you get for saving cats. Pagan cultures don't even do things like that. When's the last time your employer refused to pay you for showing up on time and doing good work? When? It generally doesn't happen. Where are the police pulling people over under the pretense of speeding so that they can pass out extra fines? Does that happen? Yes. Generally speaking, no. Where are the concentration camps for people who pay their taxes? Now that may happen one day. But right now, and generally speaking, law-abiding citizens don't have to worry about their government coming after them. Where are the gas chambers for people who buy meals for the homeless? When is the last time a Chick-fil-A employee said, my pleasure, and the person on the other side of the counter punched him in the face? It usually doesn't happen. Generally speaking, those who do good get good in return. That's written into the fabric of God's world. It's the way he designed things to work. Even the common grace that's still left in a world where we think everything is falling apart. How much good did you experience just on the way here this morning? How protected were you from threats and harm just because of the common grace that still remains in our society today? There's so much good that God is still allowing in our world. But we get tunnel vision. We get in that code black where all we see is our struggles and our trials and then we let God's encouragements to us in the scripture fall flat and we find no joy in them. Yes, we are feeling the threat that our government could subjugate us for doing righteous things and that they might exalt evildoers. I know employers have overlooked diligent employee work and even promotions because there's somebody that the boss likes better. The hardworking farmer doesn't always get the first share of the crops because the outlaws in town came in and took everything. The merciful are treated harshly, the loving receive hatred and so on. But if we back up and look at the broad scope of human history, beloved, the vast majority of God's story would reveal that people who do good live in peace. And then he says, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Peter says, even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. What's Peter's point here? He's trying to encourage us with these words, beloved. You're in a win-win situation. No matter what the church does, obedience to Christ leads to blessings in this world. And even if you're persecuted, you don't lose your blessing. You don't lose it. You maintain that blessing and favor the visual and auditory attention of the Father. Jeremy and I have had an ongoing conversation for several years now about the power of a joyful Father. And I want every man in this church 
to have a supernatural impartation of joy in your home. I want your kids to have no memory of a depressed or angry dad. I think one of the main reasons that fathers and wives and children, for that matter, don't have joy in their homes is because the devil whispers things in your ear like this. Joy is about what you don't have, not about what you do have. True Christian joy is about what you don't have yet, not about what you've already got. When you look to the cross to be saved from your sins, you're going to spend the rest of your life trying to keep your eyes on the cross, and Satan's going to spend the rest of your life trying to get your eyes off the cross. That's his goal. But true joy in the Holy Spirit is found looking to Christ. It is found looking to Christ. Can I tell you two things you can do in application to this point to counteract Satan's attack? First, thank God out loud for what he has done in your life. Thank God out loud. I want you to actually verbally speak it with a voice that can be heard, even if it's in front of your wife or children. Thank God out loud for things He has done. I've mentioned before that my wife has always been excellent at encouraging this in our home. When you all are in our home on Wednesday night, we are going to share with you a joyous story many of you haven't heard yet because it is April the 6th, this coming Wednesday, when we'll have fellowship, meal, and prayer. And we want to encourage everybody on that day, which... Five years ago, Tammy had a heart attack, and I'll tell you more about that story on Wednesday, to sit at the table around a fellowship meal and verbally thank God for things He's done in your life. We want this to be a season of remembrance. Always it comes around, and we're always thanking and thanking God for the things that He has done. Joy is about who God is, and how often in the Old Testament did He say, remember what I've done for you. Remember what I've done for you. We can hope in what He will do in the future. But if you need joy, remember and thank Him out loud for what He's done in the past. Second thing I would encourage you to do is sing praises to God out loud in thankful response to His blessings to you. And I'm going to encourage you to sing from the Psalter. Beloved, we don't sing from the Psalter because... We've got this cult mentality that only the true people of Jesus sing from the Psalter, okay? We sing from the Psalter because we're singing God's thoughts back to Him. We're saying what God has already said that we know is pleasing for Him to hear. Who decides what worship is? Yahweh does. God does. And He's given us 150 examples of what true worship of Him looks like. That doesn't mean that the hymns are bad. That doesn't mean there's other songs that are being written today that we can't sing. But I would encourage you to sing from your Psalter. And I put in Slack this week a list of psalms in the Psalter that are to tunes that you already know, like Be Thou My Vision or Amazing Grace. You can look through, and every night at family worship, you can pull open your Psalter with your kids, and you can read through. The lyrics will be from the psalm, but it'll be a tune you know, and you can sing it together as a family. Worship God out loud. It's joy producing. Thank Him out loud. Worship Him out loud. Now in conclusion, and after this win-win scenario that Peter says that we're in, that Satan tries to convince us we're not in, 
He gives us two imperatives. You remember that's a verb in Greek that carries the weight of a divine command. The first one is that we are not to fear. The Greek word phobos, fear, it's the most common use of the term in the New Testament. And it's used two times in this verse. It literally says in the Greek, but the fear of them do not fear. The fear of them who would persecute you, don't fear that fear. Whatever fear is generated from the lost, we are, as Christians, not to give in to it. The second word that he uses is a word, terasso. It means to agitate or trouble. It has the sense of stirring up water. Earlier this week, we were headed to the Haddock's house for prayer meeting, and I remember on that day, there was some pretty strong gusts of wind. We were driving over here along Melton Hill um, next to the Clinch River, which is normally a pretty calm river. I think that's why they do so much rowing up through there because you can actually get in some good rowing and it's not a lot of turbulence. But all those wind gusts brought white caps up on that river. They were stirring up the waters, making it not a river you'd want to row on, not a very gentle river. That's what this command is, nor be troubled. Don't let the enemies of God stir up your heart and agitate it, essentially making you anxious. They shouldn't make us fearful. Your Bible may have this last phrase, have no fear of them, nor be troubled in all caps. That means it is a quotation from the Old Testament. This particular phrase is taken from Isaiah chapter 8. Verse 12, I'm going to give you two neat factoids. First, I think Isaiah 8 is Peter's favorite chapter of the Old Testament. He made a direct quotation about it back in chapter 2, verse 8, when he said, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And he's alluded to it other times throughout the letter. And he will quote from it again many more times, though the language is somewhat different. I don't have time today, but at some point I'd like to discuss the New Testament writer's understanding and quotations from the Old Testament, which primarily comes from the Greek Septuagint, but we'll talk about that another time. Second factoid I want you to know is that you probably recognize that quotation from 1 Peter 2, chapter 8, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. That's from our sea shanty, the one that we've sang recently to the Word, and that's based on Isaiah chapter 8, verses 13 through 22. Now this is eminently practical, beloved. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, is the phrase before the start of the sea shanty. It is the direct context right before we begin to sing that beloved song together. During the latter reign of the northern and southern kingdoms of Israel, the northern kingdom, often referred to as Ephraim, makes an alliance with the king of Syria to attack the southern kingdom of Judah and depose Ahaz as king in order to set up a puppet government. Isaiah chapter 7 verse 2. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. You can hear that terrasso verb in there. They were disturbed. But Yahweh says, don't fear them. If God is on your side, who will stand against you? In addition, Yahweh goes on to mock the two northern kingdoms. He calls them two bushes that have burnt down to basically embers, which is hardly dangerous. 
This is the kind of perspective the people of God need about those who oppose us and even persecute us. What can they ultimately do to us? If you're zealous for what is good, who is there to oppose you? But if they oppose you, you won't lose the blessings of God. God is on your side and He's strong. His perspective is that these people are insignificant compared to His power. Brethren, the enemies of Christ are hopeless. They only produce impotence. Like today, they're destroying the family, which produces the future of their cause. They tell people to ignore biology, pretend your genitals aren't there, or maybe cut them off. They can't even add right. You can't take dominion of the world when 2 plus 2 equals something other than 4. You can't. God doesn't command fearlessness because of some arbitrary rule of bravery on His part, nor does He do this merely because He is strong and He wants us to pretend that we're strong like Him. He's telling not, us not to fear them because there really is nothing to fear. There really isn't. The command not to fear is required in order that we might be fully aligned with the truth. Now I'll give two points of application as I close. First, Christian, don't be afraid to share Christ with the lost. Wendell mentioned earlier this week um, at prayer meeting that our abortion ministry team has seen a change in Hayden. He's a young man, a student that passes us on the sidewalk and he's made a point to harass us as he walks by um, since we've moved to the Clinch Avenue abortion mill. The opposition and vitriol from him have at times been concerning to say the least. He gets in your face, he shouts at you and over you and is completely unreasonable. And I've heard from one that he has threatened them violence. We have had at times to have our video cameras out running and nonstop in case there was some form of assault. But the situation with Hayden is a good example of not fearing those who hate you and wish to persecute you. We are patient with Hayden. We're trying to love him and show him the love of Christ. But we aren't afraid of him. We're smart while we're serving. We have our phones at the ready. Could we get hurt? Sure. Would the court side with him even if we had video evidence? I'd say the odds are in his favor. What if one of us went to jail even though we were doing the right thing? That does happen. But full stop. In that story that I just told about Hayden where he's expressing vitriol against us even if he were to take violent action against us Where's the point in that story where God stops being on our side? We are not, nor should we, fear this kind of persecution because God is watching over us and all the danger the enemies of God can muster up are smoldering coals. A little heat and a sting, but nothing more. You remember how the serpent was told he would harm Jesus. He would strike his heel. It would be a painful blow but not one that would end Jesus. That Jesus would ultimately crush his head. A firm, killing, final blow. Listen to the psalmist. This is from Psalm 56. You have kept count of my tossings. You have put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know. This is what I want you to know because God loves you. 
This I know, the psalmist says, that God is for me. In God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can a man do to me? Second point of application. Christian, what are you unwilling to do, excuse me, what are you unwilling to lay down right now in your life that is feeding your fear? What are the things in your life right now that you are giving vent to that are feeding fear in your life? Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but I'm eating this up and all it does is generate more anxiousness and fear in my life. You know that we're commanded to fear God alone. Throughout the scriptures, we're told 366 times not to fear, not to be afraid. I've mentioned Richard Wormbrand in past weeks. He memorized all 366 of those verses and quoted each one to himself multiple times a day when he was imprisoned for his faith. Honest question, what are you afraid of right now? What are you afraid of right now? If it's not enemies, if it's not persecution, if it's not physical harm because of your love for Jesus, what are you afraid of right now? Are you concerned for the loss of your life or your family members' lives? For their health? For their safety? What about your safety or the safety of you or your spouse or your children? Are you fearful that you'll never amount to anything or that you'll never land that job or meet that special someone? Are you fearful of what is going on in our government and what is going on over in Ukraine? I don't think that I can say this enough. Beloved, your Father in heaven loves you and is watching over you. He sees every move that you make and notices the good deeds that you do in His name even if no one else does. He promises to bless you for your work and tells you not to fear anyone or anything. And with all that truth tucked away in your mind, are you still fearful? Are you making yourself afraid? Did you know that in the medieval world, the amount of national and international news that an individual would have consumed in in their entire lifetime was roughly the equivalent of one edition of the New York Times? It's a pretty sizable daily newspaper. But I want you to just think for a minute. A medieval person would have consumed that much news over the course of their entire lifetime. One edition. I would love to know the difference in the cortisol levels between a modern man or woman and somebody from the medieval period. Cortisol is that chemical in your body. When you get anxious, your body produces this cortisol. And it has... If there's too much of it, a negative effect on you, health-wise and other. Some of you, I would encourage to consider fasting or heavy regulation of how much news you take in. And I know people are going to get upset with me about this. But beloved, you don't have to know what's going on all over the world at any given moment. You don't. You weren't created to handle the weight of the world. God can, but you weren't. Paul told the Thessalonians to mind their own business. That's a paraphrase. Could the levels of sickness in our culture today, even in our church, 
be due to our anxiousness and fear? I would say that at least it's a contributing factor. How much international news do you take in on a weekly basis? Is that so you, you can be in prayer for the world? That's good. How much time do you actually spend praying for the world? Here's my concern, beloved, that we have an insatiable desire to know everything that everyone thinks is worth knowing and little desire to know Christ. Fathers, are you struggling with frustration or joylessness in your home? Have you considered that depressing world news could be calibrating the temperature of your heart in your home? I know many of us have confessed to struggling to find joy in our lives. Let's drop the extra weight. We don't need it. Our Father in heaven loves us. Thank Him out loud. Praise Him out loud. Joy comes. Fear runs. It's very simple. It really is that simple. Here's a thought from John Calvin. It is for little reason that we raise a clamor, that we suddenly kindle under wrath, and that we burn with the passion of revenge. All this doubtless happens because we do not consider that God cares for us and because we do not acquiesce His aid. Thus in vain shall we be taught patience except that our minds are first imbued with this truth that God exercises such care over us that He will in due time succor us. He will in due time come and lift us up in the midst of our burdens. If you are in Christ, there exists right now a love from the Father directed towards you so strong that you could just as soon discern the mysteries of the Trinity as reach a complete understanding of His love for you. God also created you for good. When you do good, who is there to do you harm? And even if you do suffer for Christ, you won't lose your blessing from God. He blesses His people wherever they go. So what does your life need to have lasting joy? And why be fearful? If God laughs at what the evil are doing, shouldn't we too? Let's pray, beloved. Father, we thank you that your word reveals truths to us that we will spend an eternity searching out. And one of the chief is how great is my Savior's love for me. We'll never be able to exhaust the vast riches of the love of God. His ways are unsearchable. And no one can challenge them. Not even us in our doubting can challenge the love that you have for us, Father. We thank you for Jesus who reconciled us to you, who made us as prodigals come home and made us able to receive a real, true, personal love from you. A robe of righteousness, sandals for our feet, a fattened calf and a feast. And you celebrated you celebrated over each one of us when we came. I pray that your drawing work would not stop. I pray even this morning that as some sitting here have perhaps sensed that there is real enmity and there is real wrath. 
that they would look to Christ and they would be reconciled to you. If sins are left not dealt with here, if we like Achan are trying to hide our sins from you, oh Lord, reveal that now so that people might run to you through Christ. You embrace us in your arms. Welcome us home as sons and daughters. And so may we go now to our fellowship meal with joy and gladness, knowing that we are loved by God and that though He disciplines us, though His face is against us when we do wrong, it is against us as a father who is eager to see his son grow up into righteousness. Help us to trust your hand and your love. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.